I was thinking this morning, and a fitting theme verse, I thought, was Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You say, well, yes, of course, there's all that snow out there. you got to find a snow verse. And there is that. And before it all melts, and as the rain comes, even this afternoon, and the, and the snow slowly gets washed away, and the roads become clear again, and the ground becomes dirty and muddy again, before that happens, look out again and think about how softly, gently, and yet fully that snow has covered everything. In the contrast of the white, I realize that our garage door has faded. The color is not the same as the rest of the house any longer. And uh, just something about the brightness of that white. And it reminds me of the glory to come for those who believe in Jesus. That our sins have been covered. But the other part of this verse that I also was thinking about this morning, and it very much fits our, our um, time today in Romans chapter 5, is the Lord's invites us, come, let us reason together. Romans is a logical book. Uh, Paul is sequential logical. He's, he's building a case. He's, he's making a point, and he's undergirding that and supporting that all along the way. And, it's, and uh, this is, this is, uh, there's a time to put thinking caps on. There's a time to follow the reasoning and what God is. We have an under, a salvation that God intends us to understand. He wants us to, to know and to deepen. I find, I don't know about you, I am loving this time in Romans, not only for our church, and I love what's happening in the church, but I'm loving this time in Romans for me and things that I'm seeing and realizing and are, and are getting a hold of me that I hadn't seen the last time I went through this book or even that we did this together as a church several years ago. So, Reasoning together in so great a salvation, all that God has done for us. Shifting gears a little bit from that, um, Romans chapter 5, the logic, the rationale does have something to do with our being in Christ and no longer in Adam. There is this Adam to Christ comparison that is, is um, fleshed out for us in this chapter 5 of Romans. And it's good to think about that. We are going to reason together in that. And along the way, there, there certainly is a question posed. What about this whole Adam does something and the rest of us are, are enduring the consequences of it? There's something about Adam makes a choice. Adam does something God told him not to do. And you and I seem to have the penalty of that falling upon us. And that, that doesn't seem right. You know, you know that reasoning in some way reminded me of group projects. Think back to school. Maybe it was high school. Maybe it's college. Think about group projects. Did you like group projects? I asked, several, I asked several people that question this week, and, and uh, normally the answer is no. And for the achievers in groups, all the more the answer is no. For individually-minded people, uh, the, no, I don't like, because I know what I can do, I know what I'll contribute, I know how hard I'll work, and I don't know about these other guys. 
I don't know about these slackers. I don't know if they're going to just rest and, and, and am I going to have to carry them too? And my grade at the end of it all doesn't just depend on what I do. My grade in this thing is going to depend on what they do. A lot of times we don't like group projects because we leave the, our, our, our outcome based on what somebody else does or doesn't do. Let me take that another direction. Those of you that are teens, you do realize, I hope, uh, hopefully there hasn't been a serious time where your, your parents have had to, had to um, lay this out for you or step into this, but, but your parents are responsible for what you do. You do certain things, like you're out there in the snow today driving the family car and you slide off, you slide into somebody else, your parents, your dad is going to be responsible for that, right? Well, what if we turn that around a little bit? What if you were responsible for the things that your dad did? What if your dad takes his car and he goes sliding into somebody else's car and you had to pay the bill for that? That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be right. So those questions are in the back of our mind as we come into Romans chapter 5, considering in Adam and in Christ, condemned in Adam, all of humanity, and yet Jesus is able to reconcile us back to God. How does that work, the one for the many? We're going to have to put our thinking caps on, not our snow caps, but our thinking caps, and we're going to have to come and reason together. What has God done? making our sin white as snow. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, and the first section, Romans 5, I divide into two parts, verses 1 through 11, reconciled into peace, and then verses 12 to 21, separation to death meets reconciled to life. So he lays a groundwork in the first half concerning this being reconciled, brought back, And then that plays out in what happened from Adam to Christ in the second half of the chapter. So we're going to read just the first five verses, first of all. Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5. Follow along in your Bible, and we've got some help from the congregation gathered together. We've got some help in reading that this morning. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we've been reconciled into peace. Did you catch that peace phrase in, the, in, in those verses? Faith in Christ's death for us reconciles us, brings us back into a peaceful, harmonious relationship with God. We can have peace even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardships because of our confident assurance of what God has done for us and the future that he has for us. So in those first five verses, verses one and two, justification, being justified by faith, we have 
peace. Part of our future hope is peace. We have righteousness, we have glory, honor, and peace. We have a return to life in harmony with God. We, we are returned to that way of peace, which Romans 3 told us that fallen men have not known, and it's ours to know again. Verses 3 to 5 say that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardships and suffering, that is, God working in us through those circumstances, God takes what the enemy would use to destroy us and God uses it for good, that even in trouble, even in sufferings, that he is working proven character and hope. That God is working in the midst of those, and sometimes in the midst of hardship, God allows us to, to take a step closer into Jesus' experience for us. Sometimes in the midst of trouble, what God is allowing is for us to, to step closer to and get some sense of, some experience of, something of the hardship, the suffering that Jesus endures when he does that for us, when he enters into this broken humanity in order to die in our place. That even in suffering, we have joy and glory before us. That is our confident assurance. That is our hope. And yet in this time, in this life, in these years, this is the only opportunity we have to suffer. And you think about that and you say, oh, good. And yet, as I've said before, in eternity we will not walk by faith. We will, we, we will live by sight. We will see the Lord in all of his glory. Now we have the opportunity to walk in faith, believing God for what we have not yet seen. And in the future, in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will not endure suffering. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more tears. Now is the only time that we have the opportunity to endure suffering for his name's sake. So we needn't fear it or run from it, even as our Lord did not. Verse 5. How do we know that this hope that we have in Christ, that this hope does not disappoint, this hope does not put to shame, this hope is not an empty hope, this is a confident assurance that is going to be realized. We know that because the love of God is poured into our hearts. How's that happen? Well, that poured language, that, that, that reminded me, first of all, of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh in the book of Job, in the, in, the, in the promise of Ezekiel concerning the new covenant, that God would pour out his Spirit upon humanity, that the Spirit unfolds for us, shows us God's love for us in the pouring out of Christ's life in his death for us. That's what he's going to unpack here further in these coming verses. Verses 6 through 11, he's going to remind us how we know, how can we be sure of our hope? Look how much God has already done. Look how much God has, has uh, done in order to bring us back into peace with him. Let's look at those verses, verses 6 through 11. Again, open your Bibles, follow along as the Sladkos read these for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, 
shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So in verses 6 to 10, they explain that the love of God is known to us in what God has done for us in Jesus. We have peace with God because God has reconciled us to himself. That the key to justification is a right relationship with God received by faith in Romans chapter 4, as Ryan laid out last week, that we are justified, chapter 3, by faith, chapter 4, in Christ, 5, to new life, we'll see in chapter 6 next week. Justified to a right relationship is summed up in one word that was repeated three times in that section, reconciled. We have been reconciled. We have been brought back into right relationship with God. That is the peace of verse 1. Justified, we have peace. That peace, that harmonious relationship is reconciled to God. It's not just an end of hostility, but we are now again in relationship. And that happens while we were weak, while we were unworthy, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. You know, anytime you begin to wonder. Anytime your mind wanders and you begin to doubt, could God really be for you? When you begin to have those kind of thoughts, could God really be for me? Look at, remember again, remind yourself of what God has already done for you. While you were an enemy, you're no longer his enemy, you're reconciled. While you were a sinner, lost, outside, separated, and now you are brought home. You are God's family. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. You belong. How much more, he says. There's a new outlook. And that outlook is, is rather than because of our experiences, we get excited. Because of things are going well, we rejoice. No, we rejoice in God. Regardless of the circumstances, this is what God has done for me. Instead of how good or badly things are going, God has restored me. God has reconciled me to himself. I have peace. I thought about that when I thought about the divide in the USA today. And there is a sharp divide, and there's no obvious way, there's no apparent way. And easily, in the conversations that occur, we get sucked into the divide in one way or another. And sometimes you've got to be careful. You've got to think, what's the a, what's a right answer to this person? Somebody, somebody uh, brings up some, some sharp statement on one side of that divide or the other. How do I respond in a way that's going to lead toward peace, in a way that's going to maybe bring up the need for reconciliation? You're right, there's a, there's a sharp divide here. And I don't, I don't know how, on human terms, we could ever put that back together again. But you know, humanity was in, in that situation. I was in that situation with God, and God put that back together again. God reconciled us back together with himself. And that reconciliation didn't happen by, by one side pointing out what the other side did and the other side pointing out what the one side needs to do. But he came near and he stepped in and he took in what we had done and our wrong and he took that upon himself for our sakes. I thought about that in political terms and I thought, what about in the midst of the, the, the divide right now? 
There's a lot of focus on one side and among the leaders or a particular leader and his failings. What about if on the other side, the leaders said, you know, the situation in America is really bad and we've all been caught up in it. And what if our most senior leaders said, we're going to step down because what's good for reconciling the country is better than my position. If they did that, that would be remarkably politically and it probably isn't going to happen. But what if... We did that on an individual level as well. That's where reconciliation happens. That's where God did it. He, the one of reconciliation comes when I own my own sin, when I own what I contributed to this. And he took that away for me. God, it, it, it's been said, and, and I'll return to this later, but, but C.S. Lewis, in talking about even the hardships, even the sufferings, even the brokenness of life, and yet we have joy, and we wonder, well, why aren't the circumstances? Why aren't my, is my situation better? And this is the way Lewis put it. He said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. Happiness and peace is not there apart from God. It does not exist. Lewis says there is no such thing. So, how is it that enemies can then be restored? How is it that God does this reconciliation? What Adam lost for humanity in the Garden of Eden when had one simple command, do not take of this fruit of the knowledge of good and evil to determine and to decide good and evil for yourself, even in taking what God said not to was stepping into determining for myself. No, it's not going to be evil for me. It's going to be okay. To that one transgression in the Garden, removing all of humanity into separation as enemies of God as a result, how does God restore that again? That's what we're going to see in verses 12 to 21 now. It being teased in with this idea of we are at peace with God because we have been reconciled in Christ, then how does that work, the one for the many? This is the reasoning together of Isaiah chapter 1. So let's read verses 12 to 21, and this section is going to be divided up into two sections, and the Martins are going to read it, and they're going to split it. Because verse 12 makes a statement that then he, we pause, and verses 13 to 17 are going to explain that statement, and then verse 18 picks up from verse 12, and it'll continue. So the Martins are going to read that section for us as you follow along. Romans chapter 5, and verse 12. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ." 
So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the second half of chapter 5, this is where the separation to death that comes in Adam meets reconciled to life in Christ. This is where the reconciliation happens. This is how it is. The death of separation is answered in God's, re- in God's reconciliation that restores us to life. In verses 12 to 17, death or died occurs five times. Five times, maybe six. I forgot. I lost count. That's followed in the, in the closing verses where life, in verse 17 to 21, life is repeated three times. We have moved from death into life, and that's the core of Paul's explanation here in the second half. Let me pick it up again, then in verse, um, in verse 12, what does verse 12 say or not say? It, verse 12 does not say that we are punished for Adam's sin. There are consequences. There is a result that comes upon us. It doesn't say explicitly that we are punished for Adam's sin rather than our own. In fact, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. In Ezekiel 18, God answers the charge that some in the captivity were grumbling about saying, our fathers did this and now this is the result that that has come upon us. And God says, no, no, no. It is not just about your fathers. It is about your guilt as well. And we are all condemned as humanity before God, not merely because of what Adam did, but because of what we also do. One of of my friends from my bookshelf uh, in his classic commentary on Romans, Cranfield writes, All sinned in their own actions, although related to Adam's sin as the natural result of his sin and its moral debility. We have a disability. We are disabled in terms of human corruption that we cannot not sin. We cannot not be self-absorbed, self-focused. Why? Because we've been removed away from God. And instead of being God-focused, we are left to be self-focused. Separated from God and left to ourselves, that's exactly where we are. This fits Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and what unfolds there. Life is in God's presence and death is separation from God. Do you remember when Adam in the garden is told? And God is emphatic about this. God makes a strong statement. If, If you translate it literally from Hebrew, it reads kind of weird. God says, in the day you eat of that fruit, dying you will die. And that it's kind of odd to us in English. So we would, we would change that a little bit. You will surely die. Because the Hebrew construction isn't emphatic. It's like underlined it and put it all in bold. Stand this out. In the day that you eat it, you will surely, absolutely, no doubts, no exceptions, you will die. And they took and they ate. And what happens? God has them lined up. There's Adam and there's Eve and there's, and there's the serpent. And the consequences begin to fall. And do Adam and Eve die that day? Not physically. 
In fact, they go on. There's, there's Cain and Abel born later. There's Seth born after that. There's many other, there's other children born after that. There's a lot of years still to come for Adam and Eve. But what does happen on the very day? They are separated. They are separated from God's presence in there in the garden. They are outcast from the garden. They are expelled outside. And there's an angel who draws a fiery sword to prevent them from entering again into the garden and into the presence of God. No more walking with God in the cool of the day. Humanity has been separated. One, one decision, one transgression by Adam in this case led to all of his progeny, all of his descendants being born and, and existing in a place outside God's life. Separated from God's life, separated from God's presence. And separated from God's life, we are not able to live. We were created to live God's life in his presence with him. As, apart from God... We have no life. Apart from God, we are left to ourselves in sinful, broken humanity. Let me give you an example of that. In the U.S., somebody from our southern border comes into the U.S. without going through the normal processes, comes in illegally into the country, brings a very small child with them. And the child now is, is in this limbo state. Dreamers, we call them. They did nothing wrong. They had no choice. They, the, the, the child was a year old, maybe. Nothing that they did leads to their present predicament of being illegal, of not having a legal standing within the country. In fact, they can't, under our current laws, do anything to change that. The only thing they can do is go back to the country their parents came from and they actually came from as well, and there to make application to try to normalize and gain resident status within the U.S. They're left in that legal, um, in that situation of being breakers of the U.S. law because of what their parents brought them into. So it is with Adam. Because Adam brought himself and all of us out of God's presence, out of God's life, we are left separated from God's life. Let me give you another example of it. You, once the snow melts, you look out of your yard and stuff is grown because it's been a kind of a warm winter and there are some weeds, there's some trimming to be done. And so it's, it's, it's a ways out there away from the house, but no problem. You've got an electric trimmer, but you've got an extension cord. And so you head out with your trimmer and you plug in your cord and you head out and, and the trimming to be done is 100 feet away from the house, but you've only got a 50-foot cord. You're going to be left to do What? You're going to be left to swing that trimmer as fast as you can against those weeds, but you're not going to have any power in the trimmer because you've been separated from the source of that power. The, the trimmer has no life in and of itself when it is separated, cut off, removed from its source. That's humanity outside the garden. We cannot live the life that God created for us to live with him when we are apart from God. Humanity out of relationship with God is incapable of not sinning, is incapable of living godly and righteously. Verses 13 to 17 explains that one man got us out of blessing and into this mess, and so also one man restores us. Verses 13 to 14, it's not a problem that's based on keeping a particular rule. Death continues for the human race even though they don't sin in the same way as Adam. It's not about a particular rule cut off from God. We violate God's character, whether there's a particular list to follow or not. 
verses 15 to 17, it might seem unfair to have death as the result of one. Because Adam moved us out, so also the, the situation with those dreamers. They're left in a limbo that is not their own fault, and yet that's the reality of it. What can be done? What can be done for us? Again, there's an analogy in a current situation that we could use to point back into the gospel. What could be done for humans who are separated because of what Adam does, separated from God's presence? What can be done for us? If it doesn't seem fair that God holds us, holds consequences over us based on what Adam did, well, think about it this way. God has restored us under the same principle. That as an Adam, all die in Christ will all be made alive. And he unpacks that and says that this is like this, but what God has done in Christ is even better. That that, that is the result of, of violating a commandment, and yet God has restored us, not on the basis of keeping a commandment, but God has restored us freely out of his grace. That one, one man's transgression puts everybody in the place where they cannot help but sin, And what God has done in Christ is Christ comes and he does what we are not able to do. Jesus leaves God's presence. He leaves the garden. He comes out into the brokenness and there endures it for us in our place so that we would have his standing, that he brings us back home again. He restores us back into relationship with God. That's verses 18 to 21. That God has restored us in Christ, has restored us back into life. We have been brought back into garden. No longer are we separated from God. No longer are we cut off from God's presence. The angel at the gate has put away his sword. You are not kept out any longer. You are received. You are restored. The angel has put away his sword, and we are now back reconciled to God, what he described in the first half of the chapter. We are reconciled to God, restored into his presence, and in his presence is our life. This is going to come real for us in Romans chapter 8. Why is it that we can now live? How is it that the fruit of the Spirit that is produced by the Spirit in our life is the character of God worked in us, and yet when we choose to live in our own energy, in our own strength, apart from God's enlivening Spirit, we only result in the works of of the flesh that are imperfect and worthless and tainted and selfish. That we live this life in Christ by the power, the presence of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. That's where Paul's going in Romans. I'm peeking a little bit ahead, but let me return back to chapter 5. We are no longer dead, separated, cut off, outside in Adam, but we have life in relationship again with God in Jesus. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says in John 17, this is eternal life. Eternal life is not simply existing forever. Eternal life is not just we will go on after our physical death. Everybody goes on after physical death. But is it going on with God or cut off from God, separated from God? John 17, Jesus defines for us eternal life. He says this is eternal life, that they would know you. And that know is a relationship word. It is a face-to-face, it is a life-upon-life relationship knowing that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our eternal life is back into living relationship with God. Now, how do we live that out? How do we cultivate that? Well, one of the ways we cultivate that is in personal devotion and word, prayer, and in word, in prayer, and obedience. As, as families share in faith together, 
As they share, this is what God has said, and this is how we step into that. This is how we believe that and walk in that together. In connection with others in fellowship, in small groups, in in serving with others. As we serve with others, serving others rather than serving ourselves, we step into the life of Jesus who said the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. We, we cultivate that relationship to live in God's life in that personal devotion. I take in God's word, God's promise. I pray with God. I commune with him. We can think about this in terms of, have, have, have you ever thought before that when you are reading, when you are meditating, reflecting, when you're opening that journal and writing down your response to, this is what God has said to me, and this is, this is where the Spirit is prompting me to apply that. This is how I need to respond. That there, in those moments, what is happening? The Spirit of the living God is shedding abroad the love of God into your heart. Paul in Romans 5 is not telling us a whole lot about this is what you need to then do. He's saying, this is what God has done for us. And when the love of of God in Christ, when that gets hold of our hearts, Paul Paul explained it to the Corinthians that way. They had a hard time understanding Paul and where he was going. There's so many distractions around them in Corinth, and they're going in so many crazy directions. And Paul sums up his, his, his life and ministry this way. The love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ for me compels me. I can do no other. And as the love of Christ for you, seen in his reconciling us back to himself, into his life, as that gets hold of us, and as the Holy Spirit pours that out, opens that up to us in our hearts, look out. It will take off. Your life will be different. And it becomes a matter of how do I live Christ's life? How do I live this new life instead of the old in this moment, in this particular circumstance, in this particular choice? But that's still getting ahead. That's going to come to us in Romans chapter 6. Let me repeat from C.S. Lewis. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. For us, as image bearers created in the image of God to be in relationship with God, there cannot be any happiness anywhere else. It does not exist. There is no such thing. But for us, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Just don't let that wait until you die physically. We step into that now. Because we have been reconciled back into right relationship with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So that as sin reigned in death, as sin reigned when we were separated, we were outside, when we were without hope and without God in the world. But that's no longer true. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, leading to eternal relationship and fellowship and harmony and reconciliation and peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that though we were without hope, we were outside. You have reconciled us together to yourself again. You have brought us home. You have welcomed us back into your presence. That there's nothing that needs separate us again. The angel has put away his sword. We can come home. 
Father, I would pray as well that anybody now that is hearing these words and thinking perhaps for the first time, realizing Jesus did that for me. Oh, Lord, would this be the time when your Holy Spirit makes that clear to their heart that simply by believing what you have said concerning Jesus, our Savior, that he did die in our place to bring us back into relationship with you. And that we receive that, not by anything that we do, but by believing you concerning Jesus. Father, that they would also have this eternal life that is not merely living forever, existing forever, but it is having life in relationship with you, both now and forever. We thank you for that, God. And would you help us then in the next choice, in, the, in, in opportunities and circumstances, even today, Lord, would you give us an opportunity to live and to choose to walk in your life instead of our own way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.